You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're joined today by Peter Bergen, who is a print, television, and web journalist, documentary producer, think tank director, and the author of five books, three of which were New York Times bestsellers and three of which were named among the nonfiction books of the year by the Washington Post. The books have been translated into 20 languages and have been turned into three documentaries, two of which were nominated for Emmys and one of which won an Emmy. He is vice president director of the Fellows Program and the International Security Program at New America here in D.C., Professor of Practice at the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University, where he is the co-director of the Center on the Future of War. He's also CNN's National Security Analyst and a fellow at Fordham University's Center on National Security. He has testified before multiple congressional committees about Afghanistan, Pakistan, al-Qaeda, drones, and other terrorism-related issues. He is a member of the Homeland Security Project, a successor to the 9-11 Commission, and also the Aspen Homeland Security Group. He's a contributing editor at Foreign Policy and writes a weekly column for CNN.com. His last book, before this one that he just put out, a New York Times bestseller was Manhunt, the 10-year search for bin Laden from 9-11 to Abbottabad. The book was translated in eight languages, and HBO produced a documentary based upon it. The film, for which Bergen is executive producer, was in the Sundance Film Festival in 2013, and it won the Emmy for Best Documentary in 2013 as well. His 2011 New York Times bestseller, The Longest War, The Enduring Conflict Between America and Al-Qaeda, Newsweek and The Guardian named Longest War as one of the key books about terrorism in the past decade. And Amazon, Kirkus, and Foreign Policy named Longest War as one of the best books of 2011. He's also the author of the Osama bin Laden I Know, an oral history of Al-Qaeda's leader, and Holy War, Inc., Inside the Secret World of Bin Laden. Holy War, Inc. was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 18 languages. It was named one of the best nonfiction books of 2001 by The Washington Post. A documentary based on Holy War, Inc., which aired on National Geographic Television, was nominated for an Emmy in 2002. I could talk about all the different things and all the places he's written from the L.A. Times, the New York Times, the National Interest, Mother Jones, or all the newspapers from The Guardian to The Daily Telegraph, but we only have so much time. Uh, but he's also worked as a uh, correspondent or producer for multiple documentaries that have aired on National Geographic, Discovery, and CNN. Most interestingly, in 1997, as a producer for CNN, Peter produced the Osama bin Laden's first television interview in which he declared war against the United States for the first time to a Western audience. His newest book, which just came out recently, is The United States of Jihad, Investigating America's Homegrown Terrorists. And it's accompanied by an HBO documentary called Homegrown, The Counter-Terror Dilemma. Thank you, Peter, for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Oh, thank you for having me. 
So I really want to dive into your new book uh, because it's incredibly fascinating. But but first, as we approach the five-year anniversary of the death of bin Laden at the hands of SEAL Team 6, I'd like to ask, yeah, we're, we're coming up in May. Uh, I'd like to ask you about how that happened, how your, your interview with him happened. It's, it's still one of the most extraordinary gets in journalism. It's not like tracking down some disgraced politician. It's, it's a guy <laughs> in a cave in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the logistics of how you pulled that off? How did you get Ben Laden? Well, you know, the Trade Center was attacked for the first time at the end of February 1993, and the people involved wanted to bring down the towers. They only, I mean, they killed six people, but the intent was to bring down the towers. And they all had a, they had a common link, and many of them had trained in Afghanistan. And they seemed to be part of an organization, and organizations have leaders. And so when I heard about bin Laden in 1996, uh, I thought, well, maybe this is the guy who led this organization that attacked the Trade Center. Um, and, uh, of course, my bosses at CNN had no idea who bin Laden was because he wasn't really a public figure at the time. And luckily, they were the sort of people who said, you know, okay, you you know, if you're if you're interested, let's see if we can get this guy. And it you know it was quite a performance because he uh, for a start these people had dealt they didn't understand how the media works they were very paranoid as well uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, friends and acquaintances of Bin Laden in London talking about the Quran and Saudi politics and you know my I wanted to ask them you know when is the interview happening <laughs> they they were yeah they were checking us out right. and they were checking me out and to some degree and. But they had made a decision that uh, Bin Laden would give his first TV interview, and they, you know, they were considering CBS, 60 Minutes, and maybe the BBC, and you know, they were, and they were kind of vetting us. Uh, at a certain point, we got the okay to go to Pakistan and then to Afghanistan to go and meet with Bin Laden. But I think all along the way, there were, first of all, they vetted us, then they kind of like, I think they put us in places where they could see if we were being followed, right. and they were, you know, they treated us with a lot of. Uh, they treated us you know, very carefully. I mean, they when it came to the final decision about you know, the day the interview was going to happen, in, in, the, in, in that 24-hour time frame, they, they looked at all our camera equipment and said, you can't bring any of that with you uh, because they were concerned about tracking devices. They also said, don't bring a watch. Don't bring anything except the clothes you're wearing. So they were, and then they, you know, when we got the, when the, Heavily armed, m- heavily armed guards arrived with a van with curtains. You know. They drove us through the night, and they changed. Uh, we changed vehicles. They blindfolded us. They searched us very carefully. They told us at one point, if you have a tracking device, now is the time to stay. So, <laughs> otherwise, you know, it'll be a problem. A little amnesty possibilities <laughs> <there> before. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, they were, you know, they, they, they were very serious about the security surrounding him. Your, your colleague Peter Arnett actually does the interview, yeah. um, and, and I've watched it when it came out, and I've watched yeah. it again recently. And, and, and my opinion is, it might be similar to a lot of other people, but Bin Laden almost comes across as reasonable. Um, I yeah. mean, he's saying death to America in many yeah, cases, yeah, yeah. but death to American soldiers in Saudi Arabia. He has economic arguments behind it. He has, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's certainly a rational person. This, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you know, I, was he going to be a table-thumping revolutionary? Was he going to be... And he wasn't anything like that. He was very, you know, pretty low-key and, and well-informed. And as you say, it was a, it was, it's a rational, it's a reasoned articulation of why he was declaring war against the United States. It's about American foreign policy in the Middle East, essentially. And, of course... Um, 
you know, lots of people have these objections to American foreign policy. Right. So, I mean, you know, but they don't turn to violence. And uh, that was what he was threatening. And, of course, then he executed on his threats. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of disagreement about why bin Laden decided to break bad, to, to use the terminology. You know, at, mm. at, he was an economic student from a very wealthy family with inside Saudi Arabia. Mm. There's arguments about, you know, kind of how he went down the jihadist path. What, what is your take on that? You've, you've studied him probably more than anybody. What, well, what? you know, I talked to a lot of his friends and family and acquaintances um, for the book that I wrote called The Osama Bin Laden I Know, and I interviewed only people who knew him. Some people knew him well, some people knew him less well. But they're pretty, you know, when you talk to 50, 60, 70, 80 people with varying degrees of knowledge about him, you do get a kind of universal portrait that kind of... And, you know, the portrait that emerges is of... He was a very devout teenager. I mean, he, he devout to a point which was, you know, kind of unusual even in 1970 Saudi right. Arabia. I mean, he was praying seven times a day. He was fasting twice a week as a teenager. And he would gather his friends to come to his house, and they would chant religious songs about Palestine. Uh, not, not they would chant these songs. They were not um, songs in the kind of right. conventional because that's against uh, Wahhabi Islam. But it, so, this the point is, is he was a true believer in a very ultra fundamentalist version of Islam from an early age. Why did he then turn to violence? You know, I think that was, you know, first of all, he actually fought the Soviets pretty bravely himself, with almost suicidally bravely with this group of university students who went over there in the mid-80s to fight the Soviets. And I think he had a baptism of fire, and suddenly this kind of very mild-mannered and guy that barely said a word suddenly began to see himself as a leader, and then, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, when the, when the United States put troops into Saudi Arabia, this was kind of a very big deal for right. him. Um, in 1990, because he saw that as infidels trespassing on the Holy Land, so it was kind of a process. But it began; it begins with this religious fervor. That you know, the interesting thing about him is he's got 53 siblings, and many of them did not choose that path right. at all. I mean, you know, some of them. His oldest brother died in a micro light uh, air crash in Houston, Texas, and was really, a, you know, a huge pro-American. So he was the leader of the family. And he, you know, he had houses in Orlando, and you know, loved the Beatles and played the guitar, and was a, you know, very, you know. So what all I'm saying is like, Bin Laden was exceptional, even in his own family, because mo most right. of his family w did not go down this path. There's a little bit of nature, but a lot of nurture. You know, a lot of kind of experiences throughout his life that that led yeah. him. I mean, there's also, you know, he was the only child of a particular mother. He didn't really. His father died when he was ten. Uh, he barely knew his right. father, um, so you know, he may have been sort of feeling like this is what his father wanted. Right. So the interview was, like I said, in 1997, and really this is a year before the beginning of Al Qaeda's coming out party. In '98, yeah. you have the embassy bombings in 2000, mm -hmm. the coal, and of course in 01, 9/11. Do you think this was timed? By Bin Laden and his camp, you know, retrospectively, I do yeah. because they they started scoping out. They started having a plan to attack the embassies in Africa, particularly the one in uh, Kenya, as early as '93, and they were by '97 they were deep into the planning. So, and in fact, they invited us back in '98 to do another interview, and I said no because by then this was before the embassy attacks, and I I said no. It was like why would we go spend huge amounts of money at some risk? to hear the same stuff. Right. 
But what I didn't know, and obviously what he didn't, and in fact, John Miller of ABC News went and did the interview with bin Laden in 98. That was just a few weeks before the embassy attack. So they they were in an interesting position because they wanted to sort of signal that this, that this was theirs. Right. On the other hand, they didn't want to take total ownership for it because then their claim to the Taliban, they had nothing to do with it, would go out the window. So the Taliban kept saying, you know, there's no evidence that bin Laden's involved in these things. And so bin Laden wanted to have some plausible deniability, but he also wanted to take credit. Right. <laughs> well, was, I mean, that, you, you look back at that interview and Peter Arnett's talking to him and asks him about his future plans, and he very kind of cryptically says, hopefully you'll see that in the media very soon. Yeah, God, he says, God willing, um, you will see some of that in the media. So that, that of course, took on a lot of uh, resonance right. uh, after the fact. So let me, let me skip ahead uh, yeah. five years to, to the, this discussion and debate about Pakistani complicity in in Osama bin Laden's uh, yeah. final resting place, as it yeah. were, uh, because there's been some back and forth, and you've actually been very uh, you're very explicit about what you believe as far as the yeah. Pakistanis are well, concerned. Well, look, I have there is no evidence that the Pakistanis knew anything. I mean, there has been Sai Hirsch writing, uh, you know, based on one source, unnamed. I mean, I talked to. Uh, I don't know, several dozen many named sources who all said versions of the Pakistanis didn't know. We were listening the night of the raid for obvious reasons. We were listening to the communications of General Kiani, the Army Chief of Staff, General Pasha, the head of the ISI uh, military intelligence, because we did. We were concerned that that you know the Pakistanis you know might interpret this as some kind of invasion and right. that there would be some Pakistani military response that would be very dangerous. So, and they were as surprised as anybody else was. Um, and they were also angry about the fact that they weren't given a heads up. But of course, you know, I, I think that in, if they thought about it, we were sort of doing them a favor because they could actually truthfully say we had no idea that this was going to happen. Right. Uh, but, you know, there's, for, uh, for Sai Hirsch to be correct about that there was all a conspiracy and the Pakistanis knew bin Laden was there and it was kind of a piece of performance art. Uh, pretty much every senior official in the U.S. government would have to be consistently lying, and in the Pakistani government, they would have had to keep the story straight for several years. Right. Uh, you know that's not the way the world works. And essentially, uh, you'd have to. So Hillary Clinton was lying, Bob Gates was lying, President Obama was lying, Leon Panetta was lying, Admiral McRaven was lying, multiple other people right. who were. You know, it doesn't. When conspiracies happen as they have happened, you know, somebody talks for some reason at some point, it comes out. Um, and also, I, I was a witness myself to the to the compound where Bin Laden was killed. I was the only outsider who was allowed in. And, you know, there was a very in, intense firefight in various parts of the house that took place. Or And uh, the place was, you know, littered with broken glass. Now you could say, hey, they staged it. For, I mean, that, again, right. you know, faking the moon landing is harder than actually doing the moon landing. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, they've been. There's been uh, past, uh, pretty imp- clear empirical evidence that the Pakistanis have been somewhat rational in their foreign policy decision making. Um, well, also, you know, there's also clear evidence that Osama bin Laden is very rational in his own. Yeah. Uh, you know, because so why would he tell the Pakistanis? But to bear in mind, and General Musharraf was the, uh, the the military leader and and and, and uh, you know eventually the the leader of Pakistan was the subject of two very serious assassination attempts by al-Qaeda that he was very lucky to survive. As a result of which, the Pakistanis handed over the number three 
it was a joint U.S.-Pakistan uh, uh, operation, uh, a guy called al-Libi in 2005. They also handed over Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I mean, you know, the leader of 9-11. Right. So it's like there's no love lost between these groups. And then also, why would bin Laden allow somebody else knowledge of... He was very paranoid and secretive. And in fact, I, in the reporting for my book about this, I... Uh, I found out that there was a wife of one of the bodyguards who didn't know that was Bin Laden living on the compound. Mm. So he was hiding from people in his own compound. Right. Yeah, I mean, he had a lot of reason. I mean, half the world was out to try right. to take so, him so, out. So yeah. unless you had a reason to know, he wasn't telling you. I mean, yeah. and, you know, so there were the people, senior leaders in Al-Qaeda didn't really know where he was. They were getting communications from him, but they didn't know where he was. Right. So, so it's been five years. And yeah. So the question is, did the death of bin Laden make a difference? Other than catharsis making us feel better that yeah. we killed a guy who did not... Well, it turned out that it didn't. I mean, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, the, I think the catharsis is important and, and, and also the justice is important and uh, for the victims of 9-11 and their families. And, and, and I think it did... It kind of, you know, was a, a big uh, final kind of full stop on... The narrative, you know, Al Qaeda Central was, you know, on its deathbed, uh, and Bin Laden's death just sort of, right. you know, kind of. So the group that attacked us on 9/11, Bin Laden's death, you know, they, they're more, they're more or less out of business. But unfortunately, his ideas, you know, which we can call Bin Ladenism, uh, have, you know, have outlived him, uh, and in fact, have arguably been doing better than they've done, you know, in history. Unfortunately. Yeah, there's not a better segue to talk about your new book. <laughs> I um, was thinking that. Yeah, the United States is... I mean, all my papers lined up that way. Um, and, and, and anytime I'm an author on, on SpyCast, I ask two questions. We'll combine them into one. Really, okay. the idea is, what was the inspiration for this book? And I think that's a relatively straightforward question. But more more for our budding writers out there. Yeah. Well, well yeah, the inspiration was yeah. like, you know, the Boston Marathon bombings happened, and my longtime editor and friend and I... We both thought that the book would be, you know, we, and then, you know, what, as I began uh, writing the book, the big question became why do the Americans sign up for an ideology? Because my book is almost the piece of American citizens, sometimes right. American residents, but they're as American as anybody living in the United States. And uh, why do they sign up for an ideology that at the end of the day is about, in part, killing Americans? And that's a big puzzle. And, uh, you know, in the Cold War, we had people committing treason, um, and this is a form of treason. Even though very f- only one person's ever been charged, Adam Gadan, who was charged mm-hmm. with, charged with treason, but there is something kind of slightly treasonous about this. Well, particularly if you you know go out and murder fellow right. Americans in service of this ideology. So the, the book attempts to answer the question why, and you know, I don't have a very good answer. I don't. The more you look at it, each, each individual case, the less, the more you get to a point where you can't really answer the why. Right. Because people are very complex individuals, and I use the quote from Immanuel Kant, from the crooked timber of humanity, not a straight thing is made. And I think that's very useful, because when you're looking as, a, as an historian of journalists at people, once you kind of get into the details, you could say, yes, Major Nadal Hassan was this Islamist fanatic. Yes, he was that. But he was also a mediocre psychiatrist who had not married. He probably never had a physical relationship with anyone. He had almost no friends, and he was very scared of deploying to Afghanistan. And his cousin, who I interviewed at some length, who's a double first cousin because brothers and sisters married right. each other, his, he says essentially his, his cousin went postal and dressed it up in the garb of Islam. And I, I think that's kind of an important 
kind of a caveat about a lot of this because it is about Islamist ideology. You know, to pretend otherwise is crazy. Just as the Crusades has something to do with Christianity. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but on the other hand, when you look into these cases, the more you know about them, there are, there are a lot of other factors because plenty of people object to American foreign policy or subscribe to Islamist beliefs, but very few people then go out and murder fellow Americans. How did you source this? I mean, what... what where yeah. did you go to get the information for well, this? Well, you know, this is, this is a really interesting question. Uh, because, you know, any, any book is dependent on access. Um, and also you want to... I wanted to try and... Um, I wanted to do the significant cases, lethal cases, obviously. I also wanted to do cases that were emblematic of trends. You know, Zachary Chester is, is one of the people I profile. He was one of the very first English speaking jihadis who had a vibrant Twitter mm -hmm. social media presence and developed this whole English speaking jihad uh, which is one of the themes of the book so you know I, so I, now some people didn't talk to me some people are dead uh, social media was very useful for me because de even Omar Hamami one of the people I profiled became a leader of Al-Shabaab he was from Daphne Alabama you know he had 1700 tweets including he tweeted his own uh, assassination. Right, that was fascinating in the book. He had the, yeah. like a play-by-play -play of his own assassination. Probably the first time in history that somebody tweeted their mm -hmm. own assassination. Uh, the whole... Um, and he also published to the internet a 127-page biography. I also spoke to his father at some length, who actually... who uh, You know, these, a lot of the people that are families I met had a double tragedy. And first of all, their son was hijacked by this ideology... Mm -hmm. And it's usually their son. And then he ends up dead, often or in prison for the rest of his life. And so, you know, it's very hard for these families. And I did talk to Omar Hamami's father. So to answer your question, it's sort of, it's kind of a mixture of trying to find the stories that say something larger than just this is another guy going out and doing something really stupid and, and dumb and evil. Um, and also trying to find people who would be willing to talk to me. And, and sometimes, you know, trials are great. It, it, from a journalistic point of view, if somebody takes a plea deal, which, by the way, is the only thing that really makes sense in a lot of these cases because the acquittal rate is, is it 1% in jihadi terrorism right. cases. There are not a lot of juries that are uh, sympathetic no, to. No, no. And, 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 and the, so, but the, the point is, is that if it goes to trial, it, there is a very rich record uh, because people are cross-examined and there are witnesses. And so those are, I mean, one of the people I profiled, Carlos Bledsoe, killed an American soldier at, in Little Rock, Arkansas in 2009. He eventually took a plea deal in the middle of his trial, but it generated 12 days of testimony. And so, and then I also talked to his family who are in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, it was kind of a mix of what was out there on the public record. Could I speak to the family? And Zachary Chesser, I mentioned earlier, he wrote me a 100-page letter from Supermax in Colorado. Mm. Um, and that was very useful. Uh, <laughs> right. There's not a lot to do in Supermax prison in Colorado. Well, no, right? I was surprised he yeah. could get the letter out, to be yeah. honest. And I mean, I, you know, and, and um, so I, you know, I, got, I had some correspondence with Major Nadal Hassan, who's in a military prison, but it was not really that substantive. Um, so it's a mix of things. It's like. Right. So let me, I'm a historian, not a political yeah. scientist or a journalist. And yeah. so I, I often wonder about the difficulty of writing a book about an issue that literally changes every day. And I think Janet Napolitano in her very, very praiseful uh, New York Times review of your book actually had a great line where she says, 
Mapping and analyzing post-9-11 homegrown terrorism is the ever-shifting contemporaneous train of his subject, talking about you. It's a bit like writing a history of the 1960s while the Beatles are still singing. <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do you, it's a cultural kind of movement. I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, how well, do you, know, I mean, th- through, through happenstance, I was finishing the book as the Paris attacks happened. Um, and I was able to, and of course, that was a bunch of homegrown, you're, right. they're all French and Belgian citizens. And then San Bernardino happened. And, you know, luckily I was able to at least address some of that in the book, you know, not in the detail that I look at some of the other cases. And the interesting thing about the San Bernardino case is we build a, we and myself and my research team build a database of three, more than 300 cases since 9-11. And the profile is average age 29, third married, third kids, college, you know, as educated as the average American, similar incomes. And what was interesting, we came to that conclusion before San Bernardino. Right. They were 27, 28, they were married, they had kids, he was earning $70,000 a year, they'd gone to college, they graduated. You know, they were ordinary Americans living the, living the American dream. Yeah, I was going to bring that exact that ordinary Americans idea because yeah. one of the most interesting points your book makes is that we believe in you know universally about terrorism thing, even in homegrown terrorism, things that are just completely false that they're foreigners, that they're lower <laughs> class, uneducated, bleak economic yeah. or social futures, broken families or extremist families, but they're as ordinary as anybody else, and right. many of them are. Have potential great futures ahead well, of them. Well, Major Dadal's son, you know, his family yeah. had businesses in, in Northern Virginia. He was born in Arlington. He became an army major and psychiatrist. It doesn't get any, earning $90,000 right. a year. It doesn't get any more like living the American dream. And of course, you know, there's a whole raft of academic literature on terrorism, and terrorism has been a bourgeois endeavor as a general, you know, the Bader Meinhof gang in the 70s in Germany, the anarchists in the late 19th century in Russia. I mean, t- typically it's the people who are the elite sort of speaking on behalf of the dispossessed, as it were. Not all the time. Right. Uh, now, in Europe, we're seeing a diff- different demographic profile. The people in the Charlie Hebdo attack, the Paris attacks in November, they were from the bon Dieu. They were, you know, if they, a lot of them been to prison. But in this country, these are, these are ordinary Americans. And that interesting, there's a book by Christopher Browning called Ordinary Germans. And it's, obviously, these are very different questions. But he looked at a battalion of Germans who were fighting in World War II and who were killing Jews. And he found that even though, what he found was an interesting thing, which is many of them found it distasteful and they weren't necessarily Nazi ideologues, but kind of in-group loyalty and they went along with it because it was sort of group dynamics. And, and we see that in, in terrorism, you know, Mark Sageman, who I profile in the book, you know, he his important book, Understanding Terror Networks, got to the whole question of social, you know, often it was family ties, a group of friends who joined the jihad together. Yes, there was ideology, but this was also kind of a in-group love, out Sense hate. of belonging. Kind sense of, of belonging. Same thing that happens in cults. I, I right. emailed Larry Wright when I was writing the book, who wrote this wonderful book about Scientology, and asked him, you know, I was thinking, you know, because a lot of, this is what happens when these people take on this. They, they often... They start, they, they start socializing with people only with people who share their views pretty much precisely. Then they marry somebody who completely, almost who they may not know very well at all, who shares their views precisely. And they, you know, they're, you know it becomes a sort of echo chamber. And so right. there, you, we, do, we see that in, in a number of the cases I profile. But now, of course, it, it's kind of matured into something else, which is lone wolf militants who are not part of a group, but they, they're getting a virtual group. Uh, there's a there's a Israeli counterterrorism academic Gabriel Wyman, and I use his phrase, which is I thought very useful, which is the lone wolf is now part of a virtual pack, because you know Ted Kaczynski when he was the Unabomber, 
he didn't have the internet. He didn't have electricity. I mean, right. he really was the classic lone wolf. You know, today the lone wolf is like meeting hundreds or thousands of people around the world who share his or her views about ISIS, that it's creating the Islamic utopia. Um, and so the whole kind of idea of a lone wolf, we may have to, it's almost maybe time to discard the idea because right. it, it, it's, except in the kind of, except in the, the fact that these people are not attached to foreign terrorist organizations in a formal sense and they don't get training. Well, and there's no communicated, you know, relationship that helps Western intelligence pick up on plans where, right. and there's very little coordination, you know, between people. I mean, that's what right. makes the real danger of the lone wolf is that they don't do the standard things that allow for Western intelligence to pick up on right. what they're going to do. Right. But the, the, you know, the good thing is also they, they have limited capacities precisely because they right. aren't part of a group. Right. Absolutely. So, so, so th- since this book focuses on jihad in America, you're really looking at a lot of the domestic intelligence agencies like FBI, NYPD, a little DHS, NSA, domestic yeah. surveillance. And, and I'd want to say law enforcement, but it, as you explain, it becomes something very different after 9-11. Instead of investigating and prosecuting terrorism cases, really shift to preventing them. And I yeah. think that, as you explain it in the book, it's a whole new ball game once you start saying prevent yeah. these things from happening. Well, you know, the scene in the book where... Uh, Bob Mueller had never met George W. Bush, uh, and he was, you know, he, he, his first day on the job was a week before 9-11 as the new director of the FBI, and he met with George W. Bush, and he was obviously concerned about his first meeting, and he felt he had a lot of important stuff to convey about the status of the investigation and the crime scene and al-Qaeda's link. And Bob, at one point, after a couple of minutes, President Bush interrupts him and says, Bob, you're telling me what the FBI has been doing since time immemorial. That is not what you need to be focusing on now. You must prevent the next attack. Yes, yes, you can solve this crime, but uh, that is not your principal, you know, that these are not your marching orders. And so, you know, he took that very seriously, and they created a two, something like 2,000 analysts for counterterrorism at the FBI. The FBI really became a domestic intelligence agency right. in a, in, without becoming the MI5. There was a, that debate, you recall, whether we should have an MI5. But de facto, the FBI has become much more of an intelligence collection agency. They have an army of informants who, you know, are going out and trying to sort of find people who might be, you know, having ideas of jihadi ideology and might be willing to do something. And, you know, I profile, somebody in the book I profile is a paranoid, he was a, he was, he's a schizophrenic bipolar kid in his mid-twenties who really should have gone to a group home and be medicated. And I, I use the, you are going back to this question of like, how do you select the cases? I mean, right. I select this case because it seemed to be pretty black and white that this was probably overkill by the FBI. Yeah, I mean, there's just real questions about entrapment. And, yeah. and, and you even say in the book the organization that has organized the most jihadist attacks in the U.S. since 9-11 is the FBI. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to kind of – they've caught a lot of people in the act, but the question that you ask is would these people have actually been thinking about doing something violent unless they got a shove – Right. From the FBI. You know, and I, I call that chapter pre-crime, which is from a Philip K. Dick novel, right. which then turned into a Steven Spielberg film, Minority Report. And it's this issue of, like, how do you, you know, oh, when does a radical become a militant? And when do you, at what point can you, you know, and being a radical in this country is not a crime. So, you know, the question in some of these cases, entrapment has never been argued successfully as a legal matter because the FBI is always careful to say to somebody, are you sure you want to go through right. this? And they asked it two or three times on tape. So, like, for a jury, it's an open and shut case. But I think that we kind of know when things feel like entrapment. And I, you know, there are a couple of cases. The Newburgh Fork case where 
basically a bunch of four ho homeless guys were offered a BMW, 250,000 Caribbean vacation to come up with, a, you know, to be part of this uh, cockamamie pl uh, plot to t take a stinger missile and bring down U.S. military aircraft and blow up synagogues in New York. And the point is that these guys were a bunch of no-hopers, and, th and they were seem to be mostly interested in trying to get money right. <laughs> yeah. from the from the informant. Less but, ideology, more about Yeah, you know, and the money. judge at the trial said the main guy was a guy called James Cromedy, and she said that James Cromedy was uh, positively Shakespearean in his, in his buffoonery, <laughs> which I thought was a great turn of phrase. Yeah. And that basically, you know, he was a you know that he was a if you know that he was a total failure but she said look i mean i have the sentencing guidelines you know this guy obviously knew this was some kind of terror plot and they sent he's the judge sentenced him to 25 years you make an interesting juxtaposition in the book between what you call leaderless jihad and leader-led jihad you've yeah. already kind of hinted at some yeah. of the key differences here um you argue a bit it's more dangerous than al-qaeda proper certainly in, in many cases because the lone wolf idea you can't predict it coming but you've already mentioned the idea that they're less capable of doing yeah. mass casualties. Is that the key here? Uh, and, but, and is that changing because of the Internet age, because of the ability of groups like AQAP to put out Inspire magazine and well, others? Well, to some degree. But, you know, and Boston, the Boston Marathon bombers did, did read Inspire magazine. They killed three people at the marathon and they killed a police officer. But, you know, that's not 3,000 people right. on Tuesday morning, 9-11. So, you know, the, I mean, Breivik in, in Norway killed 77 people by himself. So... But again, it's not even. But so, yes, a lone wolf uh, with access to a lot of weapons that are very easy to acquire here. Uh, after the uh, the, um, the weapons in the San Bernardino case were were acquired legally. Um, so, but I mean, at the end of the day, there's you know, nine eleven was nineteen people, nineteen hijackers, right. five hundred thousand dollars, you know, training camps in Afghanistan, command and control from Hamburg, Germany money transfers from Dubai. We, we, the United States government, have interrupted you know, the money transfers. The Treasury would be all over that. The camping, training camps in Afghanistan are gone. These people would have been on the no-fly list. On 9-11, there were 16 people on the no-fly list. I mean, it's an astonishingly low number. <laughs> now they're 47,000. So, you know, we've, we've made it much harder. for. We're, we're a very hard target for a foreign terrorist organization. Right. Well, I mean, you talk in the book, and it, it's somewhat sobering when you read it about the uh, even with all the funding and massive increases in resources, the most significant almost attack since 9-11 was completely missed by intel agencies, and that's the yeah. Times Square bombing. But you, you lay out the fact that changes to law enforcement and to just infrastructure yeah. throughout the United States made that attack fail anyway. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I, you know, they, so Faisal Shazad, trained by the Pakistani Taliban, uh, one of his more recent jobs have been, and I love this detail, a financial analyst, analyst at the Elizabeth Arden Cosmetics Company, not a typical sort of haven for terrorists. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he drove an SUV into Times Square on May 1st, 2010, and he, you know, he had training, and the, and the bomb failed. And the bomb failed, I think, for several reasons. First of all, he'd only got five days of training. The reason for that is that he was trained in Waziristan, where the CIA drone strikes are all concentrated, and, you, the tr you know, the training camps don't really exist. Right. Where they're very kind of fly-by-night, where they do exist. And then he didn't buy the right kind of, um, he didn't buy ammonium nitrate, which uh, which Tim McVeigh used, which would have been you know much more effective. He sort of got a kind of fertilizer, which was you know much less uh, useful for bomb making. If he'd gone out and bought some really like high powered fireworks, that would have also helped. So, that, but you know he also might have drawn some attention to himself right. if he'd gone and bought these fireworks. So, even though. 
he wasn't on the intelligence radar, he wasn't on the law enforcement radar, no one saw him coming, the kinds of defenses we put up meant that he came up with uh, our offensive capabilities, the drone program meant that he didn't get enough training, and then our defensive capabilities, kind of what we've done around reporting, you know, the NYPD has gone out to every, you know, people, all the, all the store owners in the area and saying, look, if somebody who doesn't seem like a farmer buys you know, excessive amounts of ammonia. Right. <laughs> well, you also talk about there was a suspicious custom agent that took down his number, which allowed them to track. Oh yeah, and that was also that's a, the that's SUV a very right good back point. So him. he comes into the country and he spent eight months in Pakistan. And the customs agent, this is really the key to the case, the, the border patrol agent takes down one of his cell phone numbers, and uh, that turns out to be the cell phone number that he gives the woman who sells him the SUV that's going to be the truck bomb. And when the you know, when the NYPD FBI contact her, she has the cell phone number, so that leads to him. Right. Uh, but yeah, so all these things make a difference. So I, I want to. I looked up some stats because I think it's it's interesting that as the presidential campaigns are heating up, there's so many people talking about you know the threat of domestic terrorism here in the United States from Islamic jihadists. That the you know whether you want to argue it is racially motivated or, or religiously motivated. Uh, but you, you lay this out pretty well in the book, the idea that the fears of Islamic terrorism in the United States, not to downplay them entirely, yeah. are really kind of irrational. And, and, and since, you say since 9-11, 45 people, and this includes San Bernardino, have been killed by jihadists here in the United States. Yeah. And the numbers are – actually, you give a number lower than I've seen other places. You say 48 have been killed by far-right anti-government extremists. Yeah. And that number may be even a little low. So even the, the – the crazy white guy, far right, overthrow yeah. the government in Montana as a militia yeah. has been more dangerous than the jihadists from Syria or somewhere else yeah. in the United States. And that's just a fact. And I mean, you know, uh, of course, you know, 9-11, the 3,000 Americans were killed by al-Qaeda, and that was one of the hinge events of American history. And we kind of filter through, we filter anything about terrorism through that lens. But, you know, far right extremists, anti-government militants, anti-abortion uh, militants. I mean, they they're pretty violent. And the statistic. So, you're 35,000 times more likely to die from heart disease as an American than from a terrorist attack. Hmm. 33,000 times more likely to die from cancer than a terrorist attack. Hmm. You're almost 6,000 times more likely to die from medical error in a hospital than from hmm. terrorism. You're 4,700 times more likely to drink yourself to death than to die from terrorism. Hmm. Almost 2,000 times more likely to die from a car accident from a terrorist attack. You, the National Safety Council reports that 6,000 Americans die a year from falls. Things like people falling off the roof, putting, putting up Christmas lights, or cleaning out a gutter. That means you're 353 times more likely to fall to your death doing something stupid than die in a terrorist attack. I'll give you another in the United one. Apparently, I, I saw you know 49 people have died taking selfies in the last, <laughs> <laughs> the last not in the United States globally. Right. But, but well, yeah, so. Yeah. So it is an a, a, a understandable fear because we have no control over when a guy's going to pull out a gun or blow himself up. Yeah. Or, but it, it's somewhat we should be thinking about other things, whether climate change or gun violence totally. or all these things seem to be a better place to put our fears. Climate change doesn't behead people, yeah. You know, and so it's not. There's a very visceral quality to some of these stories. Uh, gun violence, Americans seem to have inured themselves. To, you know, if, if every school shooting had somebody shout Allah Akbar in the middle of it, we'd have a very different response to these shootings, yeah. which are terrible. But we seem to just live with it. Right. And uh, so, 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a problem that we've managed and contained. It's going to be a persistent low-level threat. So they're going to get one through at some point. It's likely to be an American citizen who does it, or maybe a British citizen or French citizen, right. since they benefit from the visa waiver, waiver program. But it's you know, clearly not existential. So let me end on this. Yeah. So someone out there, and maybe many people out there, are, are saying right now that this low risk of dying of a terrorist attack is true because of the amount of time and resources we've spent in the last 15 years fighting the global war on terror. And you've even talked in the book about the idea that the drones have, have been very effective. We found yeah. that from the Bin Laden documents yeah. that you know Al-Qaeda was running. They couldn't stay in one place. They're running around. They, they couldn't communicate. What's the, is, is a rationale to that argument that because of the billions or maybe trillions of dollars now in the last 15 years we put into fighting terrorism around the world, that has made this threat so low? Well, it depends where you're, where you're talking about. I mean, our invasion of Iraq produced al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had no, you know, didn't exist in Iraq before our invasion, and al-Qaeda Iraq is the parent organization of ISIS. So, you know, I mean, certainly the drone program has been successful, but, uh, you know, it turns out that our invasion of, of Iraq um, turned out to be a big bonus for al-Qaeda uh, because they kind of breathed a new life, you know, they got a new lease of life, and it's become ISIS. Uh, so depending, you know, I mean, it's choos choosing where you use those resources in a wise manner is, um, is, is what we should be looking at. Peter Bergen is the author of The United States of Jihad, which is everywhere now. I'm, it's flying to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. But it's an extraordinary book. Uh, definitely worth taking a look at, as are many of their other books as well. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you. This is incredibly, this is the best interview uh, imaginable. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.